0: Hey guys, before I get started officially with our new study that we're going to begin tonight, I want to keep these two books before you. Uh, We do have still have quite a few of these left, the Passion of the Christ. They're for you to take uh, and to give away. They're not for us to keep here. We don't intend or we hope we don't have a lot of these left that we've put in our bookstore later on. Uh, Please use these books. How many of you have gone to see the Passion of the Christ? You're a good, good number. I, I haven't gone yet. In fact, I didn't know if I was going to be able to go see it. And I'm still not sure. But I voiced that concern again yesterday. And someone scolded me really good. And said, you must go. You need to go. You're a pastor. You ought to see that. So they put me under the law. I think I'll have to go see it. Now. I think they said something like, if you can see Saving Private Ryan, you can see the Passion of the Christ. So I've seen Saving Private Ryan maybe three times. So um, just because I like the sound effects, and I got the video and put it on my home system. Just so I could see the walls rattle, and you know that first few minutes of the movie when they landing on the beach, I closed my eyes and just listened to all the sound effects. But anyway, I haven't gone to see *The Passion of the Christ*, but I, I think I, I'm going to have to go and see it. Um, and that book is, is for those of you who know people that may go to see it or may have already seen it, and they are, as some say, seekers or have questions about. Truth, Truth Claims of the Gospel, Truth Claims of Jesus Christ, then that book's for them. So I encourage you to take those books. We have some of those here. And then the other booklet that Jimmy mentioned to you Sunday morning, The March of Discovery. I thought it might parallel The March of Madness, but it has nothing to do with the basketball tournaments that are going on this week. It has to do with our discovery of our spiritual gifts and I hope some of you have already into this. Did you read today's little lesson? Anybody read today's lesson? The, you remember what Jimmy said at the very closing where he would be tonight? How did he say it? He's been in half hours into airplane, so... No, he didn't say it like that. <laughs> <laughs> he said it that way. I can't say that about my boss, so I thought you could say. But he anyway, it's a great study. Uh, please take these with you tonight if you um you know one per family. I think we have enough printed up now that husband and wife could get one. But if you would rather get on our website, the study is on the website. If you'd rather take, uh, you know, and do the, the uh, website thing, it's there too. So you can enjoy that. And study as we go along this month together. Now, here's what we're doing in case you weren't listening Sunday. Uh, during the month of March, as a church, we're going to study together in the... Daily devotional book that Jimmy wrote. All 31 days are in the book. He wrote every one of them. And we're going to study that together. And then on Wednesday nights, we're going to go through a five week series on spiritual gifts. And that's what this is about tonight. Here's what we're going to do here's the format for the month, our plan. Tonight, the first Wednesday night, I'm going to introduce spiritual gifts. I'm going to say all I know about spiritual gifts in about 20 minutes, and then we'll go home. Uh, I'm going to do the, you know, I'm going to build the case from the New Testament that there is such a thing as the doctrine of spiritual gifts. Although, did you know, in the actually in the original language, in the Greek New Testament, you will not find the phrase spiritual gifts in the in the Greek New Testament. But the concept, the doctrine is certainly there in, in some of our translations. Actually, in First Corinthians 12, the phrase spiritual gifts is used, as we'll see tonight. So I'm going to kind of lay out the foundation and build an argument for uh, the doctrine of spiritual gifts. I'm going to do it in a little bit different way, I think, uh, uh, to stimulate you and to encourage us as the body. And then the next three Wednesday nights, Cindy Cole will actually come in and teach and if you've been a part of our Compass class, then you have heard some of what Cindy's going to do. Let me tell you that uh, I think it's, it'll be the best part of the month because what she's going to do is is uh, interactive, it's stimulating, it's fun, it's educational. You're going to learn some things about yourself and maybe even about your spouse that maybe you didn't know or you maybe thought you knew and uh, we'll... Uh, enlighten you a bit, or at least she will enlighten you a bit. And she does something that I, th- I think is really creative. Cindy ties in, as some people do who write on this topic of spiritual gifts, Cindy ties in a creative way, she'll tie in personalities. Your own personality mix to spiritual gifts and how they can play, go hand in hand together. Also, we're going to offer this to those of you who have maybe have not yet taken a spiritual gifts analysis. We have one that we use in our compass class. It's called the Houts Spiritual Gifts Analysis, H-O-U-T-S. It's a man's name that devised this little test, a self-test, a self-administered test. We're going to give those of you who have never taken that, we're going to give you one of those and let you take it home. I think she's going to give that out next week so you can start on it. It just takes a little bit of your time at home and it'll help you analyze yourself, who you are and how God has made you and highlight some of your strengths to help kind of channel you into maybe what your spirit, in case you don't know what your gift or gifts might be. And then uh, maybe she'll give you, as she does in the compass class, an opportunity for some of you to share what your gifts are. And then, of course, we're going to show you where you can use those gifts, those various gifts, in the body of Christ. Now, guys, uh, I've been around the church long enough, as many of you have, and I have been teaching about spiritual gifts long enough to have discovered, and, and this is a God thing, that in... Very small groups. In fact, uh, I've taught my own small group this, my grace group that meets on Sunday nights, that in, a, in a, a, a group of people that size with 12 or 14 people, you can find just about every gift in the New Testament represented. It's a God thing, guys. I'm telling you that we're all uniquely gifted and you, there, we lack no gift in the body of Christ. And I'm saying in a small group of people of this size, every gift will be represented in some shape, form, or fashion. This is God working so that the body of Christ can be complete and, um, and edif- edification can take place for the glory of Christ. Now, I did, uh, for, before I forget it, there are numerous books in our bookstore and library on spiritual gifts. Um, race, I think we still have Ray Stedman's book on body life. It's an old book, kind of a classic. I think it went out of print once and we did it and we got it back. Oh, there's Cindy over there. I'm sorry. I didn't even know she was. Um, but there, here's another book that I just recently discovered in our bookstore. Philip Yancey and Paul Brand wrote a book, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. It's a a neat resource if you want to read do, do some extra reading while we're studying the topic of spiritual gifts this would be a good one for you to get it's a little bit different approach to the spiritual gifts it actually takes they approach it from the physical anatomy uh, and they use the physical anatomy to as a, as a teaching tool to show you how that we're fearfully and wonderfully made in, as the body of Christ well guys um, I, what I want to do first is look Just quickly, we're going to read, if you have your Bibles, we're going to read five passages in the New Testament. And we'll start, uh, I, I want to start kind of out of order. I want you to look in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, and verse 18. Now, guys, I can... In fact, I thought about just quickly reading through these verses and not have you take the time and turn to all of them. But you know, we're we're about the scriptures here, and and we like to keep people in the scripture, and it's good to have you in the scripture, and it's good in a in a teaching setting like this to have um, the students turn to scripture. And so that's what I want you to do tonight. Uh, John 17, look in verse uh, 18. Now, guys, this is our Lord's prayer for Who? Who is the Lord praying for in this passage? He's praying for the disciples. Look at verse 13. Jesus said, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Jesus praying to the Father concerning his own people. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, and they are not the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is that that you take them that I, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one they are not of the world even as I am not of it sanctify them by the truth your word is truth as you sent me into the world verse 18 i have sent them into the world for them I sanctify myself, that they too may, true, may be truly sanctified. Speaking to us. Now go back to Matthew chapter 18, and this is, I'm sorry, Matthew 28, and this, of course, I'm about to read to you what you know as the Great Commission, on the last few verses in Matthew 28. Uh, this This event, of course, chronologically is taking place after this lord 's passionate prayer for his people, and so the Lord has uh, he, in his resurrected body he there in Galilee, he sees the disciples and he is about to leave this earth, and he gives what we call the great commission uh, the then the verse sixteen, then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Now turn with me to the great book of Acts, chapter 2 another passage that i know you're familiar with but it will help build my case on acts chapter 2 and verse 42 now here is a snapshot of the early church the very early days of the church and luke is saying they devoted themselves verse 42 they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together. And had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet Together in the temple courts, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And this is one of the classic texts that people use to teach, to, to defend their position on spiritual gifts. First Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to read the first 11 verses here. Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagan, somehow or other, you were Influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. I'm going to stop there because I. I'm running a little bit short of time. Now, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. And let's read one more text. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Some of you can probably quote this when it's very popular, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people. But now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy. But now you have received mercy. Now guys. I have just. I've read on purpose. Out of every major portion of the New Testament. In fact. I um, Sometimes when I give a, a survey of the New Testament. I, I introduce it this way. You can divide the New Testament up. Into th- three Major sections. The first section of the New Testament is I read out of the Gospels, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The uh, second, probably major section of the New Testament would really be the epistles, beginning in 1 Corinthians that we read and going to the letters to the churches of Asia Minor, including Ephesus, and then the pastoral epistles. That's the other major section of the New Testament. And then, tucked in between those two major sections, the Gospels and the Epistles, is what we read out of the book of Acts. Of course, you know, Acts is this, it's this, really this historical narrative of the, almost basically the first 100 years of the church. Now, those are the three major sections of the New Testament. Now, of course, there is the book of Genesis, and I don't, I'm not saying that it's not a part of the New Testament, but as far as functional books that uh, have this didactic uh, teaching uh, influence in the life of the church, it would be the Gospels, the book of Acts, and the Epistles. Now, I see the book of Revelation sort of like another book like the book of Genesis. It envelops the entire Word of God. The book of Genesis is the book of origins. It's the book of beginnings. The book of Revelation is another book of beginnings. In fact, in the, chapter 21, the scripture says that, Behold, I am making all things new. So it's a, it's a book of beginnings. So if you want to read the end first, go to the book of Revelation. It tells you that we, that we win, that Jesus is going to win. But we have the Gospels and the Epistles and then the book of Acts. Now in the Gospels, guys, we discover the pattern, our blueprint for the Christian life. The question for us in the Gospels is, who is this man called Jesus and how did he live? And it's here in the Gospels that Jesus teaches us the kingdom principles. He says, like in Matthew, in the the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it has been said to love your, uh, love, um, uh, your neighbor. I tell you to love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you, and she, he shows us these radical principles, kingdom living, and then he turns around and shows us how to live, like the Samaritan woman. His encounter with the woman at the well, who was this despised woman of the Jews, the Samaritans, and Jesus takes time out of his busy schedule, and in a in a radical way illustrates for us, demonstrates for us what this servanthood should look like, loving those who are normally despised. And so Jesus not only uh, teaches us how to live, but he shows us how to live in the Gospels. And we come to the book of Acts. And again, it is this this kind of family history. It's a panoramic view of how the church functioned in the first century. And then we come to the the epistles. And what we have in the epistles, guys, is in a sense we have... The owner's manual to the Christian church. It tells us how the church should function and what it should should look like. I uh, today's Wednesday, uh, Monday. I think it was Monday. Maybe it was it was maybe uh, Monday. I was driving back from lunch and my check engine light came on in my car. And I said, "Ooh, what's that mean?" You know. So you know what I did when I got back to the church. I grabbed my owner's manual and I took it into the office and I looked up. You know, check engine light. What does that exactly mean? And Is it telling me something about this automobile? And what's what's the step to correct this issue? Well, the epistles, to a large degree, are like an owner's manual. We go to the epistles and we see what the church should look like and how it should function. In fact, if there are problems in the church... We go to the, the epistles and it tells us how we're to adge- address those problems. Church disciplines there. Church governments there. How the church should function as a community. And we've just read in the book of 1 Corinthians and the uh, Peter's epistle that the church is to be a community, a functioning body, a royal priesthood. So we see in these major sections of the New Testament this argument for what the church is to look like. And what I have found in my study of the New Testament is three very popular, three descriptive words for believers. And they're found in these three, majors of the New, these three major sections of the New Testament. In the Gospels, we are called, the first descriptive word is disciples. Disciples. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus calls the disciples. He begins to, to select these 12 men. And then we come to Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. And there Jesus goes to the hillside and He begins to teach who? Crowds begin to form, but Jesus begins to teach His disciples. The, Christi- the uh, believers are called disciples in the Gospels. Now guys, the word disciple is used the singular form of the word disciple is used 26 times in the New Testament, 16 times in the Gospel of John alone. But the plural form for disciples is used over 250 times in the New Testament. You know what disciples means? It's not, it's not a hard word. It, it means exactly what you think it means. It means student or learner. And we're called in the New Testament, primarily in the Gospels, we're... We are described as learners or pupils of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are those who are willing to sit at His feet and learn these kingdom principles. And we teach here at Grace that the there is a threefold call of discipleship for all Christians. Number one, we are taught, we are told in Scriptures that we are to discover who Christ is. That's the first call of discipleship. Where do we discover Christ in the Scriptures? In the Gospels. There we turn to the Gospels and we see, as I've already said, how Christ lived his life. So that's the first call of discipleship, to discover Christ. The second call of discipleship is to what? Become like Christ, to emulate Christ. That's why Paul said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. But he goes on to say, becoming like him in his death. It means that we are not, the call to discipleship is not to stop with mere knowledge of who Christ is, but it calls us to emulate the life of Christ, to be like Him. I've used this illustration before, so you, you've heard it probably from me, but it's good enough to repeat. I, I have this neighbor that, um, in my neighborhood, one of the f- nicest guys in my neighborhood, and, and when I jog by his house very often, especially when the weather's nice, he's out working in his yard and he knows me by name we've stopped, we've stopped and chatted before and he's visited me at my house and I've stopped at his house before but sometimes when I run by his house and I'm on my morning or afternoon jog, he'll wave at me from the yard and he'll say, do that one for me, Hall. Do that one for me. And I've done that. I've heard that so many times. I've I've, I've often thought, one of these times I'm going to stop and, 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 and tell him, you do know, sir, that it doesn't work like that. I can't... My jogging will not enhance your cardiovascular fitness. It won't lower your cholesterol. If you're going to change, you're going to have to get out here and jog with me. Ladies and gentlemen, that is, that is the second call of discipleship. It's not just to know what is right. It's know that the good thing to do. But it is to, in fact, incorporate those things in your life to become like Him. That's why Paul says, I urge you, brothers... To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. In James, it says, we are to resist. We are to resist Satan. Uh, It says in the gospel, or in 1 Corinthians, we are to run in such a way as to get the prize. Guys, this thing of the Christian life is about a change, a transformation. Hey, parents, you want to discourage your children? Here's one way to discourage your children. Bring them to church And let them sit under the teachings of Scripture. And then you go home and raise hell and live the way you want to and treat them the way you want to. You want to discourage children? Live a life like that. You want to encourage your children? Emulate Christ before them. It will encourage them in their Christian walk. It's a principle found all throughout the New Testament. That's why the Scripture says mothers... Press on toward the goal to win the prize. Paul said to, first to, in, to Timothy, For this, fathers, for this we labor and strive. How does one become like Christ? Not simply knowing about Him, but practicing the things that He taught and lived in His life. The third call of the Christian or discipleship is to reproduce Christ in others. You see it? It's to know Christ, to become like Him, but it's not to stop there. It's reproducing Christ in others. Now, guys, if in some way in your Christian life you have not had the joy, either directly or indirectly, experiencing the joy of seeing others come to Christ or seeing others playing a part in their spiritual growth, you have not matured to that point of reproducing Christ in others. You have fallen short, and many of us do in this case. Guys, I, I uh, we have a we have a uh, a lady in our church uh who is dying. I mean, she is very close to death. I've been on the phone with the family uh several times in the past few days. I, I talked to Dick today just to get a feel of where Linda is and and if you if you will pray, pray for uh Uh, The McMahon family. Dick and Linda. Linda is is very near death. And her family's going through this this struggle. Sitting, watching a a wife and mother and grandmother leave this life. But I was talking to Dick today on the phone. uh, And and encouraging him. And talking about the memorial service. And I got off the phone. And and I'm thinking. You know, we're all headed to this place. One day... (coughs) Somebody's going to hold a memorial service for us. And the people of God will come and celebrate our home going. But here's the thing that that I thought about today. Who will be there at my memorial service? Will there be anyone there that will be able to stand and say, Richard Hall played a part in my salvation and leading me to Christ. Or Richard Hall played a part in my spiritual growth. What a testimony, guys. The call to the Christian life is reproduction, reproducing what we have discovered, reproducing that in the lives of others. So in the Gospels, we are called disciples, disciples of Christ. In the book of Acts, guess what we're called? Anybody know? For the first time in the book of Acts, we're called this. Christians. Christians. And uh, Acts chapter 17 or Acts chapter 11, for the first time, the disciples were called Christians at Antioch. Christians. Now, do you know what the, the term Christian means? Do you know what it meant in the New Testament in the first century? It was... A, yes, it meant Christ-like. But did you know... what I, oh, I guess I should rephrase the question. Do you know what the, the people thought of when they heard the term Christian? It was a term of derision. It wasn't a positive thing. If you were called Christians in the early church, it meant that you were of the party of Jesus. Now guys, early on, the Christians, those of the party of Jesus, um, fell under the, the sanction or protection of the Roman government. You know why? Because early on, the Roman government thought they were just another sect of the Jewish faith, another sect of the Jews. So, the Jews were a recognized religion, so the Christians were protected, but it didn't last long. In fact, the the first persecutions in the church came from the Jews, but after that, the Romans began to persecute the Christians, and it was a term in derision. The point here is, guys, the early church, the Christians thrived through this persecution because of the principle of covenant community. They understood that there was no such thing as an individual Christian out here doing his own thing. The only way they could survive is as a, in a covenant community. They were first called Christians in the book of Acts. In the epistles, guess what we're called? I just read it. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 if you if you want to turn back there or look at there I want to make a few comments about this to, before as I wrap things up tonight but Peter says you speaking to the church you are a chosen people a royal priesthood a holy nation now guys Peter is using here a term that would ring true in the hearts of some of the early Christians who were Jews. This was an Old Testament concept, the priesthood. In fact, in the Old Testament, there was much said about the role of the priest. There were two very important offices in the Old Testament, the prophet and the priest. And the priest, as you know, were those who would intercede on behalf of the people. Then we come to the writer of the book of Hebrews and the writer of Hebrews portrays Christ as the ultimate priest and use some very powerful beautiful language in the book of Hebrews he says that Christ is the, the ultimate high priest who enters the holy of holies and what does he say? once for all so in the book of Hebrews, this Christ is portrayed as the great high priest who enters this holy of holies and does this final sacrifice, this final intercession for the people. But guys, it's Peter who takes the concept of priesthood to this, 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 uh, a different level. For Peter's teaching us that every person joined into Christ has become a priest. Isn't that beautiful? I was several years ago I was in Honduras. In a a town in southern Honduras, a dry, kind of uh, very uh, poverty-stricken area of of the country. In fact, the whole country is poverty-stricken. But this seemed to be just unusually poverty-stricken. And we were there for a week or so. And in the middle of the week, and some of you heard me tell this story, but in the middle of the week, uh, we went into this this, uh, Christian church in this this town. And I had the privilege of preaching to the congregation. And guys, uh, it was the highlight of the week. It was like when the sun set that afternoon in that, that church and that community. It was like a fresh breeze. And, and, and really, a fresh breeze was blowing through the town that night. And it seemed like spiritually, that for my, in my own spirit, there was a fresh, freshness of God there. You know why? Because we had gathered with the covenant community they didn't speak our language, and I didn't. We didn't speak their, theirs, but we were one in Christ. And I got up in that behind that little simple pulpit that night, and I'd never preached through an interpreter. It was fun, though. I asked Jimmy uh, yesterday. I said, "What well, are you looking forward to preaching? Do you like preaching with an interpreter?" "Oh, no, I don't like it at all." I said, "No." I said, "I enjoyed it. You get to stand up there, and these people." you can preach the Word of God and they look at you and, and they're smiling at you and then you have to stop. And then they turn their eyes on this interpreter and they're real serious with him. They're listening to his words as he interprets what you're saying. And then they'll, hey, Amen and Amen will come from, you know, in their, in their language. And then they'll look at you and smile and you, and you get time to, Think about what you want to say next, you know. And it's like a pep rally. They're just charging you on and on. And you're just excited. It was such a wonderful experience. You know the text I preached on that night? First Peter 2, chapter 9. You're a royal priesthood. Now, I probably should have known better. Because Honduras is historically a Catholic country. I mean, the Catholics went in there and, and Christianized years ago, Christianized Central America. And after I preached on this text, of royal priesthood, the English missionary, the American missionary, who was one of our hosts, we were leaving that night, and he was in the van with me, said, well, do you want to know how he interpreted the word priest, my interpreter that night? He said, he interpreted preacher and not priest. Now, he said, probably so, because there is this some, some bad memories about the priest in their country. But guys, the point I'm making here tonight is he misinterpreted the text. It's not preacher. It is priest. In fact, the Greek word here is actually is priestly fraternity. Anybody ever been a part of a fraternity in college? You know, it's a pretty tight bond. sororities. Pretty tight bond. Um, that's the idea here that Peter is trying to communicate to us, that we are, we're not only priests, but we're in a priestly fraternity. Now let me see if I can illustrate this, and then we got to go. I, I've run out of time. Um, did you see the movie Backdraft? It, hope, 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 hopefully you did. And, um You can relate to this. But it is the story of this pyromaniac that's running around loose in the city of Chicago and happens to be, we find out later, that it's one of the firefighters who's setting fires. And it's about this phenomenon, you know, in in fire science called backdraft. And there is really such a thing as that. But in one of the last scenes of the movie, in this movie Backdraft, These engine companies are in this huge warehouse fighting this massive fire, and and lives are on the line. And if you remember the scene, this engine crew, I forget the engine companies, but they're on this, uh, there's a kind of a collapse, and some of the infrastructure of the building collapses, and there's a firefighter that's hanging off the ledge for his very life. And one of his partners grabs hold of him. And, can I bother you? And he grabs hold of him like that. You remember the scene? And you remember what he says? He, the guy, just says, "Let me go, let me go." And his partner says, "No. If you go, we go. If you go, guys, it was we're all to, we're a unit, or we're not at all." Now, guys, that is the principle here in First Peter chapter two nine. This free, priestly fraternity. If you go, we all go. Now, I've tried to, and I've run out of time tonight, and I'll, I'll try to have to do some of this at the last Wednesday night. to. But the point I'm trying to make here again, there is no such thing as individual Christianity. In fact, Paul will go on in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and he'll use this powerful analogy, the body. And if you think that there's such a thing as an individual Christian in the church, well then cut off the hand or cut off the foot and see how the foot survives out there. It can't because we're a priestly fraternity, a royal priesthood. We are a unit. Each of us have a gift. There's no one in this room. If you've read the devotional of Jimmy's today, he made the point. There's there's no one in the body of Christ. Without a gift. The question is. Really there's two questions. Do you know your gift? And then are you using your gift in the body? You may be in the body. Right here. In this church body. And not using your gift. Paul says you're severed from the body. It's very strong language. It's like you've severed yourself from the body. You can be active in the body as far as attendance, and be severed from the body. That's our argument. That's our defense in the New Testament. Now we're going to show you what these gifts are, and, and um, you'll enjoy the next three weeks. Trust me. Don't, you don't want to miss this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this marvelous living organism called the church, the body of Jesus Christ, and we thank you that you have, in your kind, sovereign providence, Brought us into this body. We are in Christ. Lord, we, we just have barely scratched the surface of that great mystery. But we ask you, as we, as we turn to truth, teach us more. Reveal to us the great mystery of being in Christ. And may we emulate that Christ-likeness in the body. For the edification of the body. And that the lost may look at us as they did the first century church and say there's something different about thee. May they be stunned by the way this community functions. And that in that, they may be drawn to new life. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Thank you. Please take advantage of the books tonight. And we'll see you Sunday.